Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now today, as we start, I have a whole series of questions. And actually, the book title of my guest today says it all in terms of what we want to talk about. And that question is, why do so many incompetent people become leaders? So why is it that charisma and competence are so highly valued? And why do we keep selecting the same kind of people over and over and over again? And can't we do a little bit better job of managing the dark sides of our personality to become better leaders? And of course, along the way, we are going to talk about how to survive an incompetent manager. I will say, if you've ever received feedback that you need to improve your confidence or raise your visibility, stay tuned because today's advice is specifically for you. My guest today is Dr. Tomas Chamora Pramusic. Tomas is the Chief Talent Scientist for Manpower Group, leading the Center of Excellence for Assessment and Analytics, developing data-driven solutions and insight to create value for clients as well as candidates by driving predictable performance. And he's passionate about leveraging people analytics and assessments to help individuals as well as employers. He was formerly CEO of Hogan Assessments, and he is also professor of business psychology at the University of College London, as well as a visiting professor at Columbia University. Now, Tomas is an internationally recognized expert in business psychology, and you will see him all over everywhere, having written 10 books and over 150 scientific papers on the psychology of talent, leadership, innovation, and AI. And he's released three TED Talks, two of which are on the topic for today, and that's also the title of his most recent and best-selling book, Why do so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it? Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Wanda, for having me for the second time. So you make me feel very competent for not inviting me once, but twice, you know, that that is really an accomplishment. Thank you very much. And that's only because you have really good conversations and really interesting points. And I actually like your research. I think it's fascinating, this, this piece. And this one in particular, I think is just so important for us to think about. Because I agree with you, we kind of this confidence thing. Well, let me not steal the thunder from that one. I'm interested, though, in your starting point. So I know you've been fascinated with human psychology and its impact on business for a really long time, but what got you started thinking about this incompetent people kind of question? Yes, I mean, I think that the one thing led to the next, really. There was never a concrete or deliberate plan or attempt to dive into incompetence. But, you know, just like in the 60s and 70s, when the whole positive psychology movement was born out of the premise, and I think it was a correct one, that we spent so much time focusing on negativity and depressing kind of traits and bad behaviors that it was out of sync with reality. So therefore, we needed a movement or a paradigm in psychology that actually talked about positive things like creativity, self-actualization, and uh, confidence or good performance and talent. I think in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, we've gone into the other direction. So 
from the time that I finished my PhD about 20 years ago uh, up until now, if you think about the study of leadership and the way that leadership is covered in the popular media and in business publications, you would assume that the majority of managers and bosses are amazing, they're inspiring, they're transformational, and that the typical experience that the average employee has with work is incredible. And when I was studying leadership and the performance of employees and managers, I found there was a disconnect, basically, with this, and that not sufficient attention was being paid to negative behaviors, and that actually, if you look at the data, a lot of managers underperformed, and a lot of people who did not have any talent for leadership whatsoever ended up climbing up the organizational ladder. So basically, over the last 10 or 15 years, I've been trying to close the gap between um, people's actual talents and their self-perceived talents. Okay. That's interesting. Now, I, you have an interesting point of view, and actually one I have quoted to a lot of people over the years, this notion of competence and its overlap with my um, self-perception of my skills. So the actual versus the self-perception. Tell me about that data. Yeah, so really, you know, I mean, the, my definitions are pretty straightforward. The competence is how good you are at something. And, you know, often that's uh, not so easy to measure. For example, if I were to measure your creativity or your critical thinking or your curiosity, admittedly, we don't have objective ways of doing that, right? So I have to find a wide range of proxies, look at your track record, your performance, maybe ask all of your coworkers to evaluate and rate you on these traits. But for a lot of things such as artistic skills or mathematical skills, intellectual skills in general, IQ tests, you actually have baseline measures of actual competence that you can use to anchor people's uh, abilities and their real or actual talents. So that's competence. And then once you get that, it's very easy to compare that with confidence because that's not how good you are at something, but how good you think you are at something. So for instance, you know, if we take the example of driving, my confidence in my driving skills can be evaluated if you ask me on a 1 to 10 point scale or compared to most people, how good a driver are you? And I answer 8, therefore I'm very confident. If I answer 2, I'm not. But the reality as to how accurate those ratings are can only be inferred or deducted if you also measure my actual driving skills. So confidence, how good you think you are at something. Competence, how good you actually are at something. And science shows that the relationship between the two is positive, but very modest. There's a 0.3 correlation, which means that the overlap is less than 10% between how people think they are, how good they think they are at something, and how good they actually are. Okay, so now that is astounding to me. 10% overlap between how good people think they are and how good they actually are. And this goes across all the disciplines that we look at. Is that correct? 10%. All the disciplines. So, you know, it's been tested with mathematical skills, verbal intelligence, chess playing ability, musical skills, sense of humor, even romantic skills. So studies have asked people, how good are you in bed, for example, or are you a good lover? And then they ask their partners to answer the same question. And there is some overlap, right? So it's not like the scores are uh, at the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. But the correlation is weak. And the main reason for that is that a lot of the experts, so people who are very proficient at anything, are actually quite self-critical and estimate their 
competence to be quite low or below average. And a lot of people who have very little training and are very amateurish or quite inept at something think they are amazing. So imagine in the realm of tennis, if um, there's no shortage in the world with people who think they are Roger Federer and their self-perceived tennis playing ability is similar to Federer. But if you measure how good they actually are, you see a huge gap, of course. Yeah. The part I've always said about this to groups of people as I'm talking is the only people who think that, that, who do not doubt their skill, their real skill, their competence, are the ones who are overconfident, bordering on the port of arrogance. And so it's normal to kind of deflate your competence a tad bit as human beings. We see that in IQ tests on a whole range of other things. 10% overlap. I'm still stunned with that number. 10%, less than 10% overlap between how good you think you are and how good you actually really are. Wow. That tells us something. So let me ask us the $24,000 question. Then why are there so many incompetent leaders? Or does it just feel like we got a lot of incompetent leaders? I think there are, basically. And, you know, to answer this question, we need to have at least a starting definition of incompetence in leadership or managers. And my definition, again, is very simple. An incompetent leader is somebody who has a negative impact or negative effects on those he or she leads or manages. So imagine a leader that creates high levels of uh, distrust, uh, burnout, disengagement, low levels of productivity and morale in their teams. And, you know, we can measure this if you crowdsource the performance of the leader via 360s or climate surveys like employee engagement surveys. So as an incompetent leader, why are there so many of them? And we know there are because you only have to ask the average person if in the world if they like or trust their boss or if they think that their boss has a good effect on their performance. And at least one in two people will tell you no. And I think that's really when the question gets very, very interesting, or we get to an interesting question. I think there's two things at play here. The first is that unlike, let's say, singing ability or musical talent, leadership talent isn't easy to measure. Even if you ask people to evaluate the talent of their presidents or heads of state, mostly they will have no clear-cut data on KPIs, key performance indicators to actually objectively define or compare those individuals to others. Even today, when we're in the midst of a major health crisis or pandemic, people are talking about the performance of different leaders, but there are just so many data points. It's not clear-cut. You don't know what depends on the individual, what's the function of the situation, and so on and so on and so on. So we're trying to comment or judge something that is not hard to measure in the first place. And as a consequence of that, this is the second point, people get carried away or focus on what they can see. So we focus a lot more on confidence than competence because that's the stuff that is quite obvious and easy to measure in everyday interactions like job interviews or presidential debates. So what we can see is how good people think they are. And it actually would require real competence to try to evaluate people's actual competence, and it takes real competence to not just spot, but also stop incompetence in others. So basically, we end up with a lot of incompetent leaders because there is a really interesting evolutionary bias here at play, whereby if you deceive yourself into thinking that you're amazing when in fact you are not, ironically, you'll be much better placed to deceiving others. In other words, if you can fool yourself into thinking that you're a genius when in fact you're not, you're probably going to have an advantage or an edge 
when it comes to fooling other people of the same delusion. Wow. Okay, so I deceive myself, then I'm more successful at deceiving other people. All right, I want to come back to this notion about confidence and why confidence is so important. But I have to do this first as a story because you're reminding me of an assessment center process. I think everybody will know what these look like that I sat in on. I was just witnessing. And the individual being assessed is given some um, scenario, some bits of information, and then is going to be asked a series of questions. Now, I had seen the information that the individuals were receiving, and basically it was a zero information. There was nothing in their packet that was actually relevant to the conversation that they were about to, the questions they were about to be asked. And I watched one individual sail through this, get high marks on absolutely every competent skill, like, you know, the, um, competencies that you would rate, you know, strategic thinking and, you know, all, all of these and knowing that what they've done is made it up, but all they did was come across as confident in their answers. Now the people interviewing had no idea that the person had no information. So we have no way of assessing whether they were actually competent or not. All we see is the confidence. Okay, it makes me worried about organizations who select leaders based on that one. But so let's talk. Why is this confidence? We can see it, but why do you think it's such so why are we so lulled into believing it? Well, I think you know, we conflate confidence with competence because we have no direct way of actually evaluating competence. And okay. let me give you an example of uh, another area of life where this should actually be you know, where it actually is very simple. I'm sure you spend some time bored weekends, you know, watching shows like uh, America's Got Talent or The X Factor, you know, this reality TV contest where a person uh, stands up and sings, then you can very, very quickly tell what their level of confidence is because they will feel like, you know, Pavarotti or Ella Fitzgerald. And then you can also assess what their levels of competence is when they open their mouth and they're out of tune. Right? And that actually contributes to the success of these shows because we laugh at people who are totally deluded and they think they are amazing and they have amazing talent for singing and then they sing awfully, really. But when it comes to leadership potential, we just cannot disentangle both. So we interview somebody for a job, internal or external, or we watch somebody put themselves forward for a political debate as a leader, and we're like, wow, this person is charismatic, this person seems confident, this person seems fearless, they seem very brave, bold, they are maybe just being unjustifiably pleased with themselves and unaware of their limitations. But ironically, that gets them a higher mark. So really, even though people are often shocked when I say that we could eliminate job interviews altogether and focus on track record achievements or use science-based assessments to measure people's relevant leadership competence, things like uh, empathy, integrity, intelligence, curiosity, creativity, and people skills, um, it would actually improve the selection and development of leaders a lot because right now we're focusing so much on style that we totally neglect substance. Okay. All right. So let's focus a little bit on this charisma thing, um, because I think one of the fascinating things is how much charisma has taken over the world in terms of leadership. 
um, who we're drawn to, who we want to listen to, who we tend to believe. And if they have a more charismatic personality, we tend to believe it, believe what they're saying, versus when they don't have such a charismatic personality, we tend not to believe it. So let's start with a definition. What do you mean by charis- charisma, charismatic personality? Yes, I think, you know, charisma is um, charm and likability, and it's something that can only be measured in the recipient, right? So um, if you ask people whether they are charismatic or not, what they answer will not be a very good measure of their charisma. But if you ask five or ten raters to evaluate the charisma of a politician or individual they never met, they will probably agree on whether that person is charismatic or not. So it's basically a feeling of warmth and trust and, uh, um, you know, likability that you get when you see someone who seems charming. And that person, by the way, tends to have certain characteristics in common, uh, usually, that has very little to do with their competence. So they're more likely... Um, attractive, they're more likely part of your same ethnic group or gender group, um, and so on. And charisma is neither good nor bad per se. Um, If you are very competent and you have great expertise and you're smart and you're pro-social, altruistic, and ethical, it's clearly an advantage if you also have charisma because it will help you communicate with others and establish a deep emotional connection and persuade other people to follow you. And that should be a good thing because you have all these wonderful qualities of competence. But imagine if charisma is coupled with a lack of competence, with a lack of integrity, and when it's found in people who are a little bit more narcissistic, psychopathic, Machiavellian, and they only have their own selfish interests in mind, then charisma will actually be pretty toxic and destructive. So I think the best way to understand charisma is as an amplifier. It makes good leaders better and bad leaders worse. Okay. All right. We've talked before, and I want to talk again about this whole notion of um, narcissism or psychopathic personalities. It seems like we're seeing more of them today than ever before. Is that true that the numbers have increased or is it just our awareness that has increased? I think our awareness has increased, you know, and it's difficult to get uh, objective or reliable, meaningful metrics to compare figures from the past because it's really relatively recently that we started evaluating narcissism in in, uh, a large segment of the working population, let alone leaders or managers. What is clear to me is that our society in general is becoming more narcissistic. So um, we've always been fascinated by famous people, but in the past, historically, uh, that was because uh, to be famous, you needed to also have some skills, some talent, and be an extraordinary accomplisher or achiever in an area, right? So you were famous because you actually had talent. Today, we seem fascinated with people when they're famous just for the sake of being famous. And it's almost like if you also have some talent or skills, it's a disadvantage. Oh, you know, you didn't make it because you love yourself and uh, you're famous for the sake of being famous, but actually you had to work for it or you had to achieve something or have talent or potential. So I think 
clearly, and this comes from the Western world, but it's increasingly imported or exported to the rest of the world because globalization has that effect on things, including our leadership archetypes. Today, we expect leaders to be entertaining, charismatic, funny, and, uh, you know, we see leaders as some kind of a spiritual messenger. And the more, again, we focus on their style and um, their um, uh, rhetoric or their narrative, the more destructive we are and the less likely we are to focus on whether they're actually having a positive impact on their teams, organizations, or indeed societies. So I think, um, you know, and one of the negative consequences of focusing so much on charisma is that you are going to end up with a lot of narcissistic and psychopathic individuals in charge because individuals with narcissistic and psychopathic traits do very well in interviews. You know, they are fearless. They don't experience uh, uh, neurotic or negative emotions when they're under pressure. And they know how to manipulate others because they often have very, very strong social skills coupled with a lack of integrity. So it's a pretty brutal and lethal combination. Right. That certainly explains a number of people I've seen. No names mentioned, no companies mentioned, but it certainly explains. So if I put this all together, I can't. Well, you know, the the nice thing about this is you don't even need to use examples because I think it's so commonplace and it's so obvious that I'm sure all of our listeners can pick their favorite case study and uh, (laughs) they'll be equally relevant. Yeah, usually having to do with the either the national leader that they're not particularly fond of, and I'll let everybody choose their own favorite on that one, or the last company left and the manager there that you could not stand or could not tolerate. All right, so if I try to summarize this one, it's extraordinarily hard to assess competence in things like leadership. And so what we're left with is an ease of assessing charisma, likability, warmth, trust, charm. And those are not bad qualities in and of themselves. And in fact, they have a bit of an amplifier if you actually have real competence. But where we run into trouble is when we end up with charisma and charm in the absence of competence. And that's that sets up for selecting people now who are more narcissistic or psychopathic, particularly when those people are good at manipulating others, they have really strong social skills, and they have low ethics, meaning they're willing to do almost anything to get what they want. And they're going to come across as charming, funny, entertaining, fearless, confident, courageous, all those lovely qualities that we'd like to put on leaders. How did I do? Very well. And I think if I can add one thing, it will be that, you know, we should approach the selection of leaders much like we approach a blind tasting and a kind of a wine tasting um, event or situation, not looking at the labels, not looking at the price, not looking at the shape of the bottle, but actually tasting it and then deciding whether the quality is good or not. So leadership should be more of a blind tasting exercise. Okay, that's an interesting idea that we decide who's going to lead not by looking at any the external qualities like attractiveness or height, two that we know are highly correlated with leadership selection or charisma or charm or fearlessness. We do a blind taste test. Okay, what does that look like, Thomas? How do we do that? Well, we do it by 
for example, if the person in question has some managerial experience, looking at the data from their direct reports in the past, seeing how they experienced that leader, how they performed as a team compared to other teams, and looking at the track record. So uh, in addition, you can also put those individuals through science-based assessments. Now, I know you understand the area very well, and I'm sure your listeners as well. So um, psychometric tools, for example, that ask the right questions to identify whether the individual in question has emotional intelligence, empathy, things that you can't really decide if you're just interviewing this person or seeing them from um, just a short-term interaction. And on top of that, of course, we should pay attention to a very underrated trait, which is general human intelligence, you know, especially as the world becomes more complex and you can rely less on your past experience um, and even your expertise because what got you here won't get you there. I think we need to test people's leaders' cognitive and reasoning abilities so we end up with more individuals in leadership roles who are capable of making rational, logical, and data-driven decisions, which is often not found in people who are just so focused on or utilizing their charisma so much uh, that they don't care about, you know, doing the right thing or thinking about logical solutions to problems. Okay. So this is now not trusting the individual coming to an interview to represent themselves and their skills with their past direct reports and their successes and all of that routine. Instead, we go back to the people who were led by the individual and we look at 360 data, presumably collected at the time, because everybody has a vested interest if it's at an interview time to get that person out of there. And we look at the actual track record and we look at the rates of engagement or satisfaction or retention or any of those objective measures that will tell us whether that leader is adding value or subtracting value. Okay. And then we're going to look at yeah. external assessments that let us assess in a more concrete, objective way things like emotional intelligence or human decision-making, or um, the ability to cognitively and rationally think through a challenging, tough problem. That if we did that and we killed the interview, we would probably select better leaders. Exactly. That's right. That's a great summary. And, you know, <laughs> some instances when you um, – well, if people want to understand why science-based assessments work, is because they are able to benchmark uh, candidates with very little or even no previous experience in managerial or leadership roles uh, around the same competencies that we know predict future leadership performance positively. So imagine if you identify the 20 key questions that predict whether a leader is going to be seen as caring, altruistic, empathetic in the future, well, you ask those questions. And those are typically not the same questions that are asked in a job interview, which have to do much more with, uh, you know, serendipitous areas that the interview wants to ask about or inquire or things that would measure culture fit and might not be that relevant or pertinent when it comes to leadership potential. Okay. All right. So get much more focused on what it is we're looking for from our leaders on the way and a scientific way of assessing it, not just to trust my judgment. 
Well, the problem with that is all of us somehow believe that I can look in your eyes and tell in a face-to-face interaction that you're telling the truth. And we trust that. Well, that, yeah, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that is, that is, that is a major problem, right? So in general, for human resources and specifically talent management, the biggest opportunity to drive progress in the field is uh, getting practitioners who are data-driven and uh, mature, grown-up, and self-critical enough that they can trust their, they can learn to distrust their instincts. Um, <laughs> so we all think we know talent when we see it, but more often than not, we are wrong. And uh, the problem with intuition, of course, is that most people think they have it, a bit like sense of humor. So you have, you know, maybe 90% of the people who think they're very intuitive and they're great judges of others and they can read other people like a book. And then not only are they usually wrong, but it's very hard for them to accept it and admit it later on because you have confirmation bias and, you know, people's desire to... Uh, think that they are smart and that they were right in their earlier impressions or inferences of others surpasses their desire to grow and understand the world. This, of course, is in general. I'm sure many of our listeners today are an exception to this rule, and they are curious, (laughs) humble, and open-minded. But as a general default, humanity is pretty focused on maintaining high levels of self-esteem and self-confidence to the point that we don't like proving ourselves that we were wrong. Yeah, isn't that too? Boy, that's well documented. It's very hard to admit, especially when I have made a career out of selecting some very good people. At least I think they were very good. And um, they've delivered results for one reason or another. And I believe that I can spot talent. Okay. And I believe well, that and, I know, can read know. other people. Those are two fallacies. We can't on either. Well, you know, I mean, you're still a skilled and experienced professional working in this field. So I would expect you to have, you know, higher than average or better than average skills. But the problem is even people with no experience who've never interviewed or never thought about what are the key competencies or qualities that good leaders or effective leaders need to have and never opened a single page of an academic or peer-reviewed journal article that actually explains the science of leadership, they think that they know it as well as you do. So that's the problem. Yeah. Well, the thing I will tell you, somebody who does this and has done this for decades, is that people are extraordinarily hard to read. And as good as I think I am, I can get it badly wrong on a regular basis. It's it's phenomenally difficult to, in fact, I think it's virtually impossible to read people, particularly when I have somebody who's willing to use their charisma to, um, with a lack of it ethics or integrity, I guess I want to say, where they're trying to be manipulative or they're trying to get the outcome that they want and they don't care how dishonest they are being in the process. And that kind of psychopathic personality or narcissistic personality, you can't read. It's just not possible. At least that's my view without science to back it up. All right. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, even, even if you learn, even if you learn to do it well, there's no guarantee that you can apply that formula or that algorithm with everyone at 
every point in time. You might have days where you're off, days where you're overly happy, days where you're more or less influenced. And of course, um, people are unique and uh, they're cognitively very diverse. So you might encounter a type of personality or individual you never met before and your models might not be useful predicting their potentials for leadership in the future. So, you know, it's fair to say that even when people are quite good at it and they manage to make their intuition quite data-driven because their experience is very valuable, you're still going to be better at it if you can question your own instincts and use tools and past data to supplement your judgment. Great. All right. So the answer is if you're interviewing somebody to hire, if you're selecting a leader whether you're in a selection process or you were just the leader appointing another leader, whether you're in HR, any of those, we want to use more scientific measures, not our intuition, to look at the qualities that really matter in leadership and then get ourselves out of defaulting to confidence and charisma. Okay? Exactly. All right. And fundamentally, Thomas. you want to have good measures in place later on to test whether you were right or whether you were wrong, so you can adjust, tweak, and improve your models. This is not about aiming for perfection or getting it right, but finding incrementally better ways of being wrong so that you get better at it. Great. All right, Tomas, this is a perfect place to take a break. Um, so with me today is Tomas Chamora Pramuzak. The book, if you want to know more details about this, is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? And you can see um, Tomas has two TED Talks on this particular topic as well as a host of other things. When we come back, I want to talk about two things, a little bit more on what to do if I'm not a more charismatic personality, and two, how to survive a more narcissistic boss. We'll be right back. of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., Helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace 
at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today again is Tomas Chamora Pramuzak, and we have been talking about the lack of correlation, less than 10% overlap between people who think they're good and how good they actually are, or between confidence and competence. And what we said is it's extraordinarily difficult to measure competence in leadership. It's easier in many other areas, but in leadership, that's a very hard thing to do. And so therefore, we tend to judge more based on confidence or charisma or charm or ability to give the right kind of answers and to feel fearless and so on. But what we want to do instead is to shift that. There are measures to be using. There are tactics to be used. And we want to stop trusting our intuition and look at some of the data-driven ways of assessing um, individuals' leadership capability, meaning how much value are they adding and are they having a positive impact on the people that they are leading. Okay, so Tomas, I can't go any further. We've been talking about narcissistic leaders or psychopathic leaders. Any advice for someone who finds themselves working for a narcissistic or psychopathic leader? Is there anything you can say that will help those individuals survive? Well, I guess the most helpful advice is run away if you can, change employers, because there's still a minority of bosses and managers, right? So, and it's unlikely that they'll suddenly change. If you can't leave or you like your job or your current, uh, you know, career status and situation so much that you're happy to put up with a narcissistic or psychopathic boss, then, of course, you know, the main advice would be learn to negotiate with them. Don't fully trust them. But uh, I guess you can always find ways to um, motivate them or entice them to uh, be good to you and not harm you. So that typically means making yourself a useful um, vehicles for their own career success, not confronting them. And if they're narcissistic, of course, refraining from criticizing them and uh, hurting their self-esteem, because a lot of the narcissistic leaders in those situations, they have a very inflated ego, but it's a very fragile ego. So the last thing they want is to be criticized. If you provide them with negative feedback on their performance, they become very aggressive, very defensive. So you're better off pretending that you like them and sucking up to them, even if you don't. <laughs> and most definitely, there is no way we're going to give them feedback that's going to cause them to change. Is that clear? Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. It's exactly. very unlikely. You know, if they're truly narcissistic, it means that uh, they are relatively incapable of self-awareness. Okay. All right. That's a strong statement, but I think it's an important one. Okay. And you're, you want to motivate them by doing things that are good for them and continuing to try to be useful and avoid criticize, avoid confrontation, avoid anything that might damage a fairly fragile ego. Okay? Correct. Correct. In a way, you know, I mean, you just have to let them, let them take credit for your own accomplishments, let them blame you or others uh, for their own mistakes. Uh, don't confront them. You can still turn yourself into an ally. Now, granted, you might think this is maybe questionably, questionable from an ethical or moral standpoint, but if the question is how can we help those individuals survive, uh, 
the difficult situation of having a narcissistic or psychopathic boss and they can't run away or they want to stay, that's really the best advice we can come up with. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I don't want to dwell on that one because that is not what the, the purpose is, but I think couldn't go without asking that one. All right. So I want to flip the tables. Um, you've said that charisma is an amplifier. So I want to now try to help individuals who actually have good competence and who are actually interested in developing their competence, their actual skills even further, but who don't have as much charisma. So what's your advice for them? So Really, there's a couple of things to note. One is, if the problem is that the person doesn't seem confident enough, we could, of course, help them self-promote, self-brand, spend more time advertising their achievements so that they are noticed by others and they come across as competent. But the other thing to note is that that's really not a long-term solution. Maybe I'm a little bit of a utopian here or a dreamer, but my ideal would be that we change the system so that people don't care very much about how much others are leaning in or self-promoting and blowing up their own trumpet. So I think the advice for the person could be more short-term, and really it would uh, almost entirely focus on Machiavellian tactics to uh, self-promote and advertise their accomplishments. What we should really be doing is educating the organization or the system so that they can focus more on substance and less on style. Okay. All right. I can imagine if I'm sitting in an organization and I am not as confident, that means I'm not going to love the self-promotion. I'm not going to value it very much. And that's exactly the kind of qualities you should be looking for in me that I also need to find a way to take this awareness and knowledge and tactics back to the organization and get them to think about something other than just whether or not I come across as confident or charismatic. Okay. And hopefully that's where your book comes into play. Exactly. And I think, you know, there are weirdly that digital age opens up new possibilities and methodologies for or approaches and tactics for people who are not the most outgoing, extroverted, sociable, and charismatic individuals to actually engage in the type of nudging and self-promotion that they can do over emails, messages, etc., that can help them stand out and get noticed more. Yeah. I think one of the, I mean, I've said this to many people, one of the crazy things of our current time and so many people trying to work from home and to work over digital means is that suddenly everyone around the world is equally accessible to a leader, meaning it's not just the leader's preference for who they tend to like, quote unquote, better than others and who they're naturally more drawn to than better than others. It's an easier time for competence to actually shine, to actually have its day, um, because I think everybody's more accessible. At least it could be that way if we choose to operate it that way. All right, I um, think so. I think it is, a, it is an equalizer, and it basically sanitizes and removes some of the toxic politics that uh, are more likely to contaminate, you know, analog or physical office environments. Yeah. All right, so let me flip the tables on this. Suppose I am somebody who's naturally quite confident and reasonably charismatic, how do I make sure that I'm not tipping into an overly confident or a self-centered approach? How, how do I know if I've gone too far? So this is a question I love, right? Because if you have that profile, but 
it's a moderate case of overconfidence and you're still not beyond hope and you have the curiosity to seek and respond to feedback, then I think there's a real opportunity that you experience an uncomfortable gap between your self-perceived and your actual abilities. So if somebody you admire, you rate, maybe somebody who is more senior than you tells you that you didn't do a very good job at something and you are rational and open enough to believe them, then I think you have a real opportunity to calibrate downwards and lower your confidence so that it's more in sync or aligned with your actual competence. Because at the end of the day, your competence is the reputation that you have in a work environment. So I'm using a very simple example, but this is the rule that would apply in general. So the answer is try to get feedback from others who are experts in your field, who are honest, enough to provide you with critical, constructive, but critical negative feedback on your performance and on your talents. And if that makes you uncomfortable because you hear that you were not as good as you thought you were, then you have a real opportunity to develop, grow, and get better. I mean, that basically is the formula. Great. So that means then always lean into that uncomfortable feedback, um, especially when it comes from, I like what you said, people who are honest, who are experts, and who are willing to be critical. Exactly. Okay. And that's not that's obviously easier said than done, right? Because we live in a in a world that is quite civilized. So around us we have a lot of people who are very happy to tell us that we're great even when you're not, especially if you are their boss, right? So they're more likely yeah. to uh please you and uh, engage in those behaviors. So it's an art to ask questions that actually encourage others to provide you with uh, critical and helpful, constructive, negative feedback on your performance. Okay, now that was a perfect lead-in. So what do you recommend people do to craft their questions in a more clever way that gets them that honest, critical feedback? I think there is no single or universal formula here. And, you know, there's one formula obviously works for email and remote or virtual communications, other in person. But I think the important thing is that they try and that they engage in deliberate and repetitive attempts to extract negative and critical feedback from others. So it might be rewarding the way you ask questions. So if I'm your boss and I did something, I did a presentation or a client pitch or a business proposal, I could ask you, hey, Wanda, was that great? Didn't you think it was amazing? And that would probably encourage you to say yes. But if instead I ask you, can you point out two or three things that you would have done differently? Or where do you think there's room for improvement? Or what are the things that you think could have made it even better? Then I'm probably going to encourage you to be a little bit more honest, maybe even brutally honest in your feedback. So it's a little thing like that, that can make a big difference in helping others provide you with constructive feedback on your performance. Yeah. I'll give a shout out to Sheila Heen on this one. The book is called Thank You for the Feedback. And it, she has one question in there that I just absolutely love, which is to ask people who are actually competent in your area, what's the one thing that if I did differently would make a difference to you? Yeah. Exactly. I love that. You know, and recently we went into several organizations um, for um, a very simple question that we embedded in a climate service, so employee engagement or attitude um, service, where we asked people 
I think it was a statement like along the lines of, I frequently provide my manager, my direct line management manager, with negative feedback on their performance. And only about 5% of the people said yes. Half of them uh, were probably lying, and the other half might be about to get fired because it's so unusual. Amy Edmondson has all the great work on psychological safety, which is what this is about. As a manager and leader, you need to create a climate of safety whereby your employees feel the trust and the freedom to critique you, and they feel that you're not going to overreact and be excitable or emotional when they do that. Okay. Same goes, I think, when you're also an employee or you're less senior in the organization, that you create that safety around you where people feel like it's okay to say you didn't do a great job on that presentation or whatever the effort is. Okay, Thomas, Thomas, we only have a couple minutes. I want to talk about gender for a moment because you've said in a number of places that you think men are more confident than women. So what's your view on gender? How does this all play between competence and confidence? Well, probably one of the most consistent and well-established gender differences found in psychological research is the difference in self-perceived ability or self-confidence. So whereas in most domains of talent or competence, there's no gender differences in actual performance or actual competence, in those same domains, if you ask men and women to estimate how good they think they are, men would typically overestimate their performance and women would underestimate, even though increasingly we are trending, humanity or all societies are trending towards more and more overconfidence. So it is true that, on average, men are more confident than women. Now, that's a bit like saying that, on average, men are taller than women. It doesn't mean that every single man you meet in the universe will be more confident than all the women you met, but there is a difference there. And I think it does explain some of the variability in leadership emergence, because in a world that values manifestations of confidence over competence, when you have men who seem more secure and more bold and more decisive, and we assume that that's because they are better leaders, it explains some of the differences, I think, gender differences in emergence. Of course, you have things like the glass ceiling and, you know, parenting rules, regulations, archaic stereotypes, but confidence, I think, does play a role. Okay. I'm going to do this in a slightly different way. So I'm with you that changing the system to focus more on competence than just raw confidence, I think is a really good idea. But I'm curious why women show less confidence. Because I think if I took any woman out of any organization and they walked back into her home area where she is in her comfort zone, where she's known and understood and so on, no one would say that there's a lack of confidence. I think there's something about walking into an organization where you are clearly not like the other people there. And I think it's true for women. I think it's true for other um, underrepresented groups that just takes a hit on your confidence. Now, what do you think? Am I right or am I wrong? I think that's true. And I would agree with that. And I think it certainly explains why uh, there are some differences and why there are also differences among women that are contextual and dependent on, you know, rational reasons. But still, the most important thing to understand in my view, is that 
the best level of confidence is not that which is highest or higher, but that which actually aligns with your actual competence. It's as bad to be overconfident as it is to be pathologically insecure. Well, overconfidence might pay off nicer or better because it, it might help you persuade others that you are good when you're not, or it might help you hide your incompetence. But really, whether you're a man or a woman, the ideal level of confidence is that which enables you to understand your capabilities and your limitations so that you can close any gaps you want to close and get better. So, you know, this shouldn't be a competition. And uh, for sure, we shouldn't try to fix gender imbalances in leadership by blaming women for not showing more confidence, when in fact, a lot of the times, they have the right amount of confidence because it does allow uh, align with their actual levels of ability. Okay. So what we're seeking then to do, I mean, I like this last part that you've said for everybody in the organization, not just with gender, but for everybody is to align confidence with competence so that I can take confidence in my actual skill and capability, but I'm also equally capable of recognizing where I'm not so competent and be willing to take action to do something about that. Okay. Exactly. And you can close the gap. And close the gap. So I actively take an effort to close the gap, which I might do in a number of ways. One, trying to improve my skills, or two, just making sure that I am constantly staffing against that particular skill gap so that I know that it's covered. We're not leaving a gap in the organization. Any number of ways of doing that. All right. Um, you got one minute for this, Tomas. But if you were giving advice for somebody who is lower in confidence than their competence would suggest, what do you suggest they do? Well, I think it's a great situation to be in. In fact, in most areas of life, the ideal situation is if internally you are aware of gaps that you need to close so that you can work and get better and increase your competence rather than your confidence. And externally, you have to find ways to, of course, uh, hide your insecurities so that you come across as competent to others. But either way, you know, the exercise here should be to become more competent. And uh, uh, gaps in confidence are often the best way to help you achieve that. Okay. So again, I focus on where my real competence is. I focus on where the gaps really are, and I work to close those gaps. Okay. Sounds really straightforward. Exactly. I love it. And I love the notion that we really begin to change how we look at and evaluate leadership, get away from our over-reliance on confidence and charisma and more into more systematic data-driven way of looking at the actual competence that drives for leadership. All right, Tomas, I can't stop without asking you about a time that you've gotten out of your comfort zone and what do you think was secret to your success? And I'll tell you, you got about a minute and a half to answer that question. I mean, I, I like to think that I'm constantly trying to go outside my comfort zone because I say yes to things I haven't done and maybe, you know, that I shouldn't say yes to um, with the intention of learning and uh, understanding that maybe, you know, uh, I was overconfident in certain areas, which is why I said yes, but I think you can learn a lot if you're then willing to incorporate the feedback and understand that you were not as good as you thought. Any accomplishments that I have managed to attain in my life happened 
pretty much as a result of that process, me thinking that I was good at something and maybe I was overconfident enough to try something, but then humble and insecure enough to understand that I was wrong. And that's basically the story of my life. <laughs> so thinking you're good at it and overconfident to try it and then humble enough to actually listen to the feedback, to solicit the feedback, and then to do something about it. I love it. That's fabulous. Exactly. <laughs> that one's a great one. All right. My guest today is Dr. Tomas Chamura Premuzek. Tomas is at the Manpower Group as their chief talent scientist. The book that we have been talking about is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It. I will also tell you that Tomas has three fabulous TED Talks, two of which are on this topic, and loads of other books. If there's something else that you want to know in this area around assessment of leadership, recognizing personalities and leadership, and in particular, evaluating emotional intelligence. So, Tomas, well, thank you very much for being a guest today. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.